Welcome, friends and fiends. This is your host, film critic and comedian, Nate Wyckoff. And I'm here to tell you about an exciting giveaway that Warner Brothers Discovery and Colton Classic Films LLC has put together to build your 4K Ultra HD film collection on digital. We are giving away four codes which contain digital 4K Ultra HD versions of Rebel Without a Cause, Maltese Falcon, and Cool Hand Luke. These are films that you absolutely must know as a film buff. You can get this code by being one of the lucky four people we pull from our newsletter list. So go to coltonclassicfilms.com slash newsletter and give us your email and your name and we'll sign you up for the newsletter and we will enter you in the competition. That's all you got to do. So please go ahead and do that. The contest ends on April 30th and we will send out the winning codes on May 1st. Thank you so much for being a listener. And here's your episode of Colton Classic Films Podcast. Welcome to Colton Classic. <laughs> Welcome, friends and fiends of the pod, to another episode of Cult and Classic Podcast, where we pair a mainstream film with a thematically linked, lesser-known cult film and discuss them. This is our Thanksgiving episode. Gobble it up. This is uh, exciting. I'm a big fan of Thanksgiving themed movies of which there are uh, a handful and I picked two of my favorites for this chat with us as always is me your host comedian and film critic for hornews.net Nate Wyckoff we also have with us Tad Mastriani how are you doing Tad I'm back baby you are back you are can you turn your mic down a bit you're not that back uh Jeff Tucker how are you doing Jeff good turkey turkey yeah, turkey, turkey. And then Greg Johnson, how are you doing, friend? Well, I was with you until you made that uh, gobble up pun, and now I'm just kind of out. Gobble, gobble. <laughs> uh, I, I met someone once who, I don't know, I don't remember what college they went to, but it was like the Fighting Turkeys or something. And like when somebody mentioned the name, he slammed his fist against his hand and wiggled his fingers like a tail and go, it was, it was, uh, it ruined Thanksgiving. Um, yeah, so I'm excited. Uh, our first movie is 1993's Adam's Family Values. This is a classic film. Christina Ricci, Raul Julia, um, Angelica Houston, Joan Cusack, Christopher Lloyd, uh, uh, Carol Kane. I mean, this is, it's iconic. Uh, and then we'll be moving on to the lesser known 2009 Killing, which is uh, about a killer turkey. And I'm really, really, really excited to talk about this movie. So we're going to dive right in. Adams Family Values. This is the 93 sequel to the Adams Family live action uh, reboot film series of the time based on Charles Adams cartoon characters, the Adams Family. Um, it was written by Paul Rudnick and it was directed by Barry Sonnenfeld. I think this is probably Barry Sonnenfeld's, if not his best, one of his best films. Um, Paul Rudnick is uh, an experienced writer. Uh, he wrote the 2004 Stepford Wives. He wrote Sister Act. He's been, he wrote a lot, especially in the 90s. Um, the movie is, or the plot is that uh, Angelica Houston, Raul Julia, Morticia, and um, uh, my brain, Gomez, Gomez thank you, uh, are having another baby. They already have two children, if you're not familiar. And if you're not familiar, I'm not sure how you're not familiar. Uh, but they have Wednesday Adams, who is the oldest, the daughter. Uh, and then they have um, uh, Pugsley, who is the uh, younger brother. And the new baby, who they named Pubert, 
looks like a, a little Gomez. He has a little pencil mustache and the slicked hair and the pale face. Uh, and he's an actual baby. Well, the kids want to get rid of the baby. Christopher Lloyd, of course, masterfully plays uh, Uncle Fester, the heavy, rotund, no neck, um, crazy, weird, white-faced ghoul uh, who played, who is Gomez's beloved brother. Uh, Lurch, the big Frankenstein-esque doorman who doesn't speak. Uh, there's Thing, um, the, the hand that just runs around. There's Cousin It, who's just a big mound of hair. All the characters make an appearance. Um, the, with the baby, the central uh, problem is that they get a nanny. And the nanny is played by serial killer, uh, well, she's not a serial killer. She plays a serial killer, Joan Cusack, who is super great in this role. And I think kind of a standout among standouts. Like She gets a, perhaps the most screen time of anyone. Um, she's a gold digger who pretends to be uh, a caring maid when in fact she's trying to seduce and marry and then kill uh, um, Uncle Fester for the Adams family fortune. She does marry him and then she separates him from his family because she can't seem to kill him. Uh, and then of course the, the tables turn accidentally, she is killed and the group lives happily ever after with new baby pubert. Uh, did I miss anything? I, I think that missed, about covers it. I probably it. missed a lot, but there's, there's, this is one of those movies where it is, in the theater especially, it's fantastic to watch because the set pieces are impressive. Every single scene is a spectacle set piece. Nothing is normal. Um, there's one scene in a normal place in this movie, and it's a very short scene where uh, Gomez and family goes to the police station, and there's a cameo by Nathan Lane as the policeman at the desk, uh, who essentially tells him to get lost because, oh, boo-hoo, your brother got married to a woman who, you know, made him a sexual slave, boo-hoo. Um, I, I like this movie. I always have liked this movie. Um, I watched it again after having not watched it for probably, you know, five, six years. It was better than I remembered it for me. I was really entertained throughout the whole thing. And, and most of it holds up pretty well, I thought. Uh, Jeff, what was your experience with Adam's Family Values and your take on it this go around? You know, I actually had like some kind of like general remembrances of this film. I, I, I had no idea why it was a Thanksgiving film, like why we were watching it this week. <laughs> um, and you know, until I watched it, I, that completely went. Um, but like the two kind of main premises of the film, uh, stuck with me. Um, and I think the one weakness is, is maybe like the plot overruns the family a little bit. Um, mm. in, in this film, you have the, you know, what if a real serial killer meets these, you know, kind of cartoon monsters, you know, uh, like a real monster meets cartoon monsters. It's, it's a neat, it's a really cool, neat premise. Mm -hmm. um and you know joan cusack just kills it like she's like yeah. you know she's she she plays like a really good uh you know uh crazy um and uh and then you have the the two kids in like a really positive nice like it, re it really is like it's really like wednesday's nightmare yeah, they scenario. get shipped off to uh, to to the rich kids' camp, summer camp, yeah, because yeah. Uh, Joan Cusack's character is trying to get rid of them. So she convinces Gomez and Morticia that they actually want to go, which they think is dreadful, but they do it because they want to do what their kids want to do. Yeah, uh, which is like you know they're singing kumbaya. It's like, 
and it's and it's it's Camp Chippewa, which is interesting because uh, you know we're we're used to at least until recently. I'm not. I wouldn't be surprised if many camps are actually changing their 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 Native American inspired names in uh, in response to the plight of people of color. But in this case, Chippewa is actually a tribe, although it's sort of problematic in of itself because they're not the Chippewa tribe, they're the Ojibwa tribe, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong anyway, but white people just couldn't seem to wrap their head around a name that started with an O and had a J and a B in it. So they pronounced it Chippewa, which is sort of a monstrosity in of itself. But uh, yeah, that is true. And, and I will say, I, I certainly didn't mind, especially as it's a sequel and we've presumably had the family dynamic set up from the first film. But I yeah. will say that I think what you're getting at is that, yeah, the, especially Joan Cusack's role um, as, and it's, Debbie is, is the character's name, the Black Widow, you know, who, who kills her husbands on their um, wedding night. She, she, like I said, she gets probably the most screen time. She really is front and center. And she does a great job, of course, uh, if anyone who can't picture Joan Cusack, you know, she's very pretty. She's uh, brothers uh, with uh, uh, High Fidelity Cusack. Why am I blanking on his name? John Cusack. John Cusack. Thank you. Joan and John. It's, they're super different. I, I certainly can't remember that. Um, but it was interesting because she's, of course, she has, you know, a push-up bra and she's very beautiful in this. But they, they give her, I don't know if they did an applique of some kind over her teeth to make them look a little rotten or if it's actually flippers, like a cover on her teeth. But it gives her an extra slur in her mouth um, because she has sort of a slurry voice anyway. She voices Jesse in Toy Story. Um, you know, she, she has a very recognizable voice, but they, they give it that extra oomph for this character by having that, that slightly thick veneer. And it's kind of a cool visual cue too, because she presents herself as such a perfect, sweet, overbearingly, you know, nice, perfect nanny, but the inside of her is actually gross and weird. Um, and so that was a cool little visual cue. Uh, Tad, what was your memory of this film and what was your experience watching it again? My memory of this film was entirely the trailer because I never actually went to see it. I remember watching the original mm -hmm. uh, years ago and sort of enjoying it, but you know, it was, it was between this and Edward Scissorhands for me in terms of the weird gothic horror sort of vibe and the, the, the additional comedy. This is, to me is the Ace Ventura 2, um, honestly, for me. This was um, this is a movie that has a lot of memorable jokes, and some of them actually really landed well. Like Christopher Lloyd did a great job, even though I'm not really a huge fan of the Fester character. One hundred percent into the role. Like he dis like yeah. I mean, we all know him as a skinny, scrawny doc in uh, you know Back to the Future, but in this role, I mean, whatever sort of funky shoulder padded suit they have him in, I mean, he just devours the scenes, and it's brilliant. It's, it's the way I looked at it is uh, it kind of gave me that vibe that I, that I had when I saw Ace Ventura 2 for the first time. Uh, it's such a different movie. It just has a, it, it, it's all about getting the jokes in and a lot less about the actual plot because mostly way through the movie, I was like, did it matter if anyone had this baby? Because I'm pretty sure the baby is literally just a comedic device and actually has no bearing on the plot whatsoever except to introduce the nanny, which then doesn't nanny throughout most of the movie anyway. By the way, Joan Cusack, um, she looked absolutely gorgeous in this movie, which yeah. was interesting to me because I grew up with Joan Cusack basically playing a lot of like plain 
characters. Yeah, she's always like, the best friend or the dorky aunt. That yeah, and she they, they turned her into a bombshell for this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and I, I think I think that's notable um, because it's funny if you look at John Cusack and Joe Cusack together, you can tell they're related and you would never think that any feature on John Cusack's face could translate into a beautiful woman, but I think she looks stunning in this film. Um, Greg, what was your remembrance of these, this movie if you saw it in your past and uh, versus your experience with it now? Well, I'm not actually sure if I ever did see this one. I'm pretty certain I saw the original um, partway through when they had like the Uncle Fester um, marriage plotline come in. I was like, okay, this seems vaguely familiar. Um, I remember as a kid mixing this up a ton with the Munsters. Yeah. So that's what I remember, the Adams Family. But I mean, I loved it. It was fun. Um, I remember liking the Adams Family. It was definitely different at the time. And I think it still feels fresh and unique even in 2020 which is kind of startling yeah i was for me i was surprised at how well several elements usually when you watch a movie from your past and child especially the 90s i feel like you get a film where either the the script doesn't hold like it feels dated and old and i don't really i know everything that's coming and i don't really feel entertained by it or the setting or the visual style is sort of old and doesn't hold up. Um, it seems like a time capsule because the Adams family has such a weird Gothic, um, you know, Edward Gorey-ish kind of, uh, you know, I was going to say nouveau Victorian, but really it's like pre-Victorian, you know, uh, Gothic vibe. It doesn't give itself to be dated because it already is so far out of the realm of our of the '90s or the 2000s that we're in now that it, it, stay, it stayed true as its own thing and feels like it could have been made much more uh, recently than it was. Because it's essentially, you know, 30 years old now, uh, 27. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that has a lot to do with kind of what I think the message of Adam's family is, which is kind of you put this facade up of, you know, this kooky and creepy family, um, but they say a lot of stuff that's like, you know, maybe that would be a better way to kind of do a family. Like um, at the beginning, there's the joke where they're waiting for the baby and some girl is um, explaining to Wednesday um, how the birds and the bees, but it's this, it's this absurd story of like, oh, like, and then the magic pigeon brings a diamond and you plant it in the most fertile ground or whatever. And then Wednesday's like, oh, that's neat. Our parents had sex. Like, yeah, it was, and, and you know, sorry. I mean, oh, I, yeah, I'm just going to say that, you know, maybe, maybe Wednesday's a little maladjusted, but she's not a stupid child. And, you know, you kind of take some, you lose some. Yeah, and Wednesday is, of course, uh, one of the lead stars out of this ensemble cast, right? And, of course, it's played by Christina Ricci. I think this, you know, she's been in plenty, but, you know, uh, and I think this role really made her and set her as, like, the iconic um, goth character of our generation. And I don't know about everybody else. This is probably TMI, but she was, like, my first celluloid crush because we're almost the same age. So it wasn't as though... Uh, you know, like it wasn't like looking at an adult, but I was like, wow, this is the coolest girl ever. And then I grow up and find out that she is next to my wife, the coolest girl ever. Um, she was uncredited doing some weird vocal tracks on uh, on Beck's, one of Beck's last three albums. I mean, all sorts of things, like living my dream in so many ways. And she's of course been in so many iconic roles um, all the way up to recently. I, and I, my wife and I were having a discussion. I don't know if she, you know, refused to 
fuck that fucking jelly man, Harvey Weinstein or whatever, but she disappeared off mainstream film for many years, but she always turned out um, like uh, fantastic indie projects. All the way up to Lizzie Borden took an ax, you know, like these, these really interesting films where you just look at it and she is always the star of the movie. And that's no different here. Every time she's on screen, she delivers the lines you remember. Like she's a meme machine in this film. Um, let's listen to a clip. This is after uh, Wednesday and Pugsley have dropped uh, baby pubert off the roof uh, to see which bounces uh, her, or him or a bowling ball. And of course, uh, Gomez catches the baby um, before it happens. And so they have a sit down talk with the family and, and here's it. Children, why do you hate the baby? We don't hate him. We just want to play with him, especially his head. Children, do you think we love the baby more than we love you? Yes. Do you think that when a new baby arrives, one of the other children has to die? Yes. Well, that's just not true. <sighs> not anymore. That is, of course, Carol Kane as Granny, who, play, who is Morticia's mom. AKA uh, playing herself. Playing herself. Carol Kane is one of my all-time favorite character actresses in the history of ever. Um, she is in Dead Men Don't Die. She was played the Penguin's mom in Gotham. Um, she was, of course, in Scrooged. I mean, she's been, I don't even, her, her- Princess Bride, of course, I mean. Princess Bride, her, her filmography is just too diverse and too <laughs> massive. Um, she's, she's a comedy legend. She's a genius. And of course she was in um, uh, the, the amazing film that they did a riff tracks of somewhat recently, uh, which will come to me, but in a serious role uh, where she plays a, 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 a murder attempt survivor. And she's just always great. And her voice, she has a high little voice. And so when they make her granny, even though she's actually like younger than, more, than Angelica Houston, I think she's like a year younger than Angelica Houston, who she's playing the mother. Of course they did tons of makeup. Uh, she's a joy and she's only got a few lines in this movie um but i think they stand out i think and, and greg and i had a little chat before we started while we were waiting for everything that to, to everybody to come in here today and the thing that sort of blows me away about the adams family is how and jeff you mentioned this too they're the the cartoon monster like they're so macabre um in the beginning they're having a solemn the kids are having a solemn burial for a cat that sounds like it's still alive in the box you know like sort of gruesome bleak uh family but the adults are so clearly all about love. I mean, their family is so important to them. Of course, Gomez and Morticia have the greatest married relationship in cinema history. Like Romeo and Juliet is a ridiculous farce compared to, you know, the true love that Morticia and Gomez have. Um, they're, they're physically attracted to each other. They're with each other all the time. You, you pretty much never see them apart. Um, I also, then, I was just, I'm just going to add in, I love that, um, you know, like, near the beginning when the baby is born on um, they're arguing over is it a boy or a girl and you know gomez runs out and he's like it's an adams and then cue the theme song and then you know you have near the end of the film um fester comes back in and gomez is like bereft in bed like dying of sorrow literally dying yeah like yeah literally dying of sorrow that his brother's not going to talk to him again and fester comes back in and he's like oh like you're a whatever now and fester's like no i'm an adams and that's like you know, kind of what brings the family back Gomez around. Gomez essentially bounces out of bed and the kids arrive. Like, it's just this beautiful moment. And, and I love the idea 
of having a family that's so focused on bizarreness and sort of revels in the the misery side of life, you know, the cobwebs and the death and all this stuff, that they are compassionate. Um, they're actually kind to everyone. Um, and even when they have this great bit where Joan Cusack's character, Debbie, she's tried so hard to kill Fester and it hasn't worked at all. And so, uh, and Fester has realized she's trying to kill him and run back to the Adams family. They have this reconciliation and then she shows up with a shotgun and hooks them all up, gets them, the entire family, all the way, including, <laughs> except for the baby who's in his crib somewhere else, all the way upstairs, hooked into uh, electric chairs. So you have this entire family in electric chairs and she gives a slideshow of her tragic life, which of course is not really tragic. She's clearly just a psychotic person from childbirth, right? Like her parents got her a Malibu Barbie instead of a ballerina Barbie. She's a ballerina, not a Malibu Barbie. And so like she burns the house down with them inside, like these crazy things. But every time she says, you know, these things like I have been put upon, when it's my time, the family is like, so true, absolutely, you poor thing. Like they're literally buying, like they 100% feel for this twisted woman. And none of the family, I mean, except presumably the baby, which we'll talk about in a second, I'm sure, um, who, who ends up crossing the wires and electrocuting her in, into a pile of dust instead of any of the Adams family. They're, they're like, you must. Like she's like, what could I do but kill you? And they're like, nothing, you absolutely must. Like, it's just this beautiful acceptance and moment where I loved it. Like, the family is just so loving. Obviously, the kids are psychotic. Pugsley is sweet, but the kid, you know, Wednesday is, is a cold, sadistic, psychotic. But you love them. And you get the impression, too, with the way... Um, for example, when they're talking about sibling rivalry, how Gomez and uh, Fester were sort of torturous to each other in childhood, that the kids will grow up to be this loving, you know, stand, stand family. Uh, and it's, it's wonderful. And I think that, especially because, I, and I, I don't know how huge it was because the Adams family was so iconic even before this with the black and white TV show and before that with, with Charles Adams cartoons. But there, there was a pushback for these films. There, there were people who, who were upset about these, who, um, you know, especially some religious groups were like, it's vile, like it's disgusting, it's disturbing, which is kind of the point, right? Some of it is kind of disturbing. Um, but they're missing the entire point, which is sort of what you said, Greg, and what you said, Jeff, which is these are cartoon villains. They're not the real villains. And they actually are professing just love their family is so important to them and as it was in the first one as well and even more so in this plot uh, and i thought that that was pretty fantastic let's get to the baby so i kind of agree tad that the baby is a, a he makes for some cute jokes he's an adorable baby the fact that he of course has um you know a mustache and hair piece essentially is funny i think that you could argue that he also he doesn't just serve as a tool to bring in Joan Cusack as Debbie, but also um, partway through the film when Fester has uh, become sexually entranced with Debbie and rebuffed all uh, contact with uh, his family. He uh, the baby turns into a blue-eyed, curly, golden-haired, idyllic child, and they're horrified. Right, like. Um, Angelica Houston is Morticia's reading him a Dr. Seuss book and he's giggling and she looks at me and goes, and Adams, 
loving this or something like that. She's like, would you ever have thought? And just like the sorrow in her face. And she turns the page to the end of the book and she goes, oh, he lives. <laughs> like, it's just the most ridiculous thing. But that is like, that is sort of Go the F Gomez's, it's assistance to the family to need Fester back because they could have had it where, well, Gomez is bummed, but everybody else is operating fine. But really they have to get Fester back because the baby is suffering from withdrawals from the family. That is, a, I agree, a weakish element. I don't think it's necessary to be strengthened simply because, as you said, there's so much going on and so many moving parts that are coming together. We don't have time to worry about that. Um, and then the final moment is that the baby has this ridiculous thing where uh, he ends up causing a, a mousetrap-esque cavalcade of events that launch the baby through the skylight and then back down into the attic where the family's gonna be electrocuted and he can grab and switch the wires and kill Joan Cusack's character. So it's, it's of course a hand of God moment, we know it. Especially at the time and in the theater, the idea of a bunch of um, happy families, because this is a family film, watching an infant be blasted through the skylight in a mansion and careen through the air and come back down is hilarious. Um, it's over the top. It's more over the top, I think, than any of the rest of the movie, which is saying something, because at one point, Fester survives a mansion explosion, um, still holding a dinner tray with like some hideous meatloaf he's made. And so, I mean, there's there's some ridiculous moments, but the entire ending bit of the baby frying Joan Cusack is the hardest pill to swallow. But for me, I don't know how other people feel, the movie did set it up to be this way. Like I didn't expect there not to be some weird hand of God that was totally off the rails saving the film at the end. Because that's what happens in every movie where there's a fucking baby character. Like every, like think of all the movies Jack where Jacks there's from the Incredibles. Baby. Yeah, it's the same yeah. bullshit. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And he's very, and I actually, of course, Incredibles didn't come out for, for years until after this, but I actually got that a lot because Jack Jacks, if people, if you haven't seen The Incredibles, I don't care if you like animated films or not, what are you doing with your life? Go watch the film. It's a, it's a brilliant Pixar film. It's my favorite Pixar film. Um, but Jack Jacks is their baby that appears to have no powers and then turns out to have all sorts of powers, but just a random array. The baby in this film is like that, right? At one point, you can see him breathe fire several times from his, um, from, from his crib. He catches a, a guillotine blade with his little baby fingertips, um, all sorts of fun things like that. So we knew that this is kind of where they're setting it up to some extent. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll go further than Tad, and I'll, I'll say that the baby, I think, really points out that this film has some pacing issues. I think that that's the biggest thing and nowhere is it more clear than whenever they're doing a bit with the baby and you kind of start to think like what is the plot again like why where, why are we doing this where are we yeah. going and i think the baby just draws attention to that that otherwise Probably. very quick snappy smart funny wonderful writing turns into a bunch of you know baby slapstick because it is kind of skit based right i mean um, there is a plot and it is carried and it's essentially, it diverges in two. And then when it comes back together, it doesn't like when the kids finally escape camp, which we'll talk about because it's one of the best scenes in my opinion in family cinema. Um, when the kids escape and they come back, Fester, they're not saving Fester. Fester's already 
rescued himself essentially and has come back to the Adams house. So usually you would get that where the kids escape and then they assist, they save Fester's life or something. That doesn't happen. And I feel like, I feel like you're pointing at the pacing issues is these two stories really don't, they're parallel and they come together at the end, but they do not impact each other. Um, which is sort of an odd thing. And that's, uh, if anybody saw The Secret Life of Pets 2, where they replaced um, uh, comedian asshole Louis C.K. with uh, Patton Oswalt, much more deserving. Uh, they're two, <laughs> they're literally two separate movies. At the end, they, they, they come together. Um, this is almost sort of the opposite. It, it's one movie that diverges, and then when they come together, it's just the conclusion of one of the plots. Um, the, the summer camp episode is now over and we're just finishing everybody up with the Uncle Fester episode. So when I'm watching it, it, you know, I certainly didn't really feel affected by that. But when you view it from a narrative standpoint, I think you're totally spot on. Um, I definitely, we have to talk about the amazing, fantastic uh, camp scene because the camp, camp Rusty. is- a, Camp Rusty, right. For the, <laughs> the Simpsons Camp Rusty. So everyone, I think if you remember something about this film, you probably remember this scene or, or somewhere close. I know Jeff did not remember it. Um, it's, it's when, uh, and it's why it's on our Thanksgiving Day episode, even though it's a summer camp, this really elitist and sort of over the top camp uh, culminates with one of the head campers um, plays being produced, which is like the first Thanksgiving or something along those lines. And uh, the first Thanksgiving, is one of the most problematic tales in American history. You know, we're, we're to assume that pilgrims um, happily came together with Native Americans and, and shared a meal. Of course, that's not exactly correct. And something as, as, as dramatic as 92% of the entire Native um, population in the Americas was decimated by disease within the next decades. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it didn't happen that way, guys. Um, so we get a little of that in this play when the perfect, you know, uh, perfect camper who is actually, uh, I forget her name, it'll come to me, but she's in Buffy and Angel later uh, as well, my wife pointed out. She is the perfect pilgrim and keeps making jokes about the dirty Native Americans because they don't use shampoo and they don't wear shoes, but they're welcome to feast. And Wednesday leads the Native Americans, who is a really interestingly inclusive um, group of kids, the outcasts of the camp, which include a kid in a wheelchair, a motorized wheelchair, people of color. And she leads a coup against the pilgrims and burns down the set and ties up the lead girl. And it's this beautiful child bloodbath, essentially, um, that, that really pokes fun at not just it doesn't really poke fun at kids. It pokes fun at adults with kids, I feel like, because you have the parents in the stands and instead of, and they're all like proud of this ridiculous display, you know, this, this uh, renegade Christmas pageant style play. Um, and then Wednesday Adam destroys it. And the parents at first aren't even like terrified and running. They're just like bemused. Like this is, what is this? Like, is this, is this German expressionist art? Like what's happening? And then of course they, they break into hysterics. Uh, and I guess the point is, is that this is very on the nose um, satire, but it works because we get two things. We get funny satire where um, 
Wednesday is leading a group of camp of child campers to scalp the other campers because they're uh, essentially br brutal oppressors of the preppy regime. But we also get Wednesday's success story because she's been pushed down in this whole camp, even though it's clear she's smarter than everybody. Um, and this is her victory lap. Uh, and she also, of course, makes kind of a little boyfriend with the Jewish, uh, the little Jewish kid, which I also think is kind of funny because not because he's Jewish, but because the stereotype of his character as being the, the, the kid with the inhaler and the glasses and the mop top hair, not just because I was that kid, but him being so like delicate and being utterly attracted to the most dangerous warped girl at camp i always like that dynamic because I, I, I mean i lo i love that they play up that they're both from different angles obviously obsessed with kind of all the dangers of the world wednesday yeah. like oh like like knives sharp objects fire etc and he's like oh knives sharp objects fire like but he collects uh serial killer trading cards and killing trading trading cards you know at one point um and uh, yeah it's great uh, i really i really I really like that whole little side plot. And I love to, at the end, when everything's been wrapped up, they have uh, him back, the, her little boyfriend comes back and he tries to dress up like Gomez because of course he thinks that's what she wants. And I mean, psychologically, who knows, maybe it is, but um, we come back and they have this moment at the end where it looks like it's gonna, if it was another movie, they'd have a kiss or something uh, and instead, they're in front of Debbie's grave and he's like, poor Debbie, she was sick. He goes, she wasn't sick. He's like, yeah, he was sick. No, she was sloppy. If I were gonna kill my husband, no one would ever catch me. He's like, you don't mean that. He's like, I would scare him to death. And she's like, no, you wouldn't. She's like, I would. And then of course a hand reaches out from the grave and grabs him and he screams and she smiles. Like it's, it was important to me and a nice touch that they kept her character pure because it was it just wouldn't make sense if she wasn't still Wednesday Adams. It would have been this weird, you know, um, transformation that, that didn't make sense in the plot. So I liked that bit. Assuming Pugsley is in the grave and she, you know, she's buried Pugsley most likely, and now she's using it to terrify her date. Like there's just a great touch. Um, the other thing I want to talk about is, and I mentioned it earlier. I feel like every single scene in this movie takes place in a radically expensive set piece, um, except for the aforementioned police station. Um, nowhere is normal. The rooms are, you know, gothically decorated in the house. And then when they're out of the house, they go to a dinner. The, the, the bistro that they dine in is like a cave and there's like a, a quartet playing, but they're behind like, bars with no doors um and there are like knives on the wall and then that's of course in this film when gomez and morticia have the iconic dance of this film there was iconic dancing in the first movie as well um where morticia and gomez do this sexy dance that flings them both across the uh the room several times and does crazy things like spinning morticia so fast that she lights fire along the ground and throwing knives at gomez uh, just a great scene. Um, I don't know how you guys felt. Like I felt like every every different scene change, I was looking all over the screen um, because there was stuff to look at everywhere. It was a spectacle. 
However, I'm pretty sure if this movie was called Adam's Family Goes to Camp and it was just the camp shit, I would have liked this movie a whole lot more. But then again, I'm still thinking, I can't remember what year Camp Krusty came out because I'm like, who ripped off who for this thing? Uh, I, I, that's a good question. I mean, of course, we, we always, you always have like things like Ernest go to camp or whatever. But um, for me personally, I actually probably could have done a little bit less with the camp, not because it wasn't good, but I thought that the other bit was more enticing for me um, because I, I loved seeing, um, I loved seeing Christopher Lloyd. Uh, he's so phenomenal. Uh, and I loved seeing um, Gomez. I mean, Raul Julia, this is of course, Raul Julia passed away uh, some years ago. And this, this to me was his crowning achievement, even though he had many, wonderful roles are you um, placing gomez above his amazing award-winning uh performance as m bison m bison i knew that was going to come up come on yes man. i am yes i am by the way <laughs> i want to i want to note how offended i am on the imdb is that he's more on the, the way they do aggregates for like what they're known for quote unquote um is by how many people seem to you know link their name with a film he is more known for Street Fighter than he is for the Adams Family films. Uh, that is ridiculous. well. I mean, it, it's because the Street Fighter film ended with uh, like a a thing for him, like oh, like like poor Raúl, like Vaya con Dios or whatever it says at the end of the movie, and you know Adams Family just shafted him. So, I think uh, he was still alive when Adams Family was released. Well, didn't he? Well, didn't he like sick during the filming and like died within a year or something? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he yeah he died he died in uh, in ninety six I think uh, ninety four he died in ninety four so um, I and and he did a lot of a lot of great a lot of great things um, and it's interesting too that the word is is that he actually played M Bison because his kids like the games which is really sweet because you know I feel like a lot of us do um, a lot of us do things for the people we love that maybe we wouldn't have have, have done otherwise and i think street fighter 1994 uh fits that category because that was a terrible film uh which i watch every chance i get um there was a movie that came out after that by the way uh, uh down came a blackbird was the film like it, it was it was his posthumous release film um and he had stomach cancer uh so and, and he he had a he had a surgery and i don't know if the surgery is what ultimately uh caused his passing or the cancer but um he was and of course he's from puerto rico uh one of the you know i would say one of the few puerto rican actors really uh, up until our contemporary times to become as successful uh, as as he was and i absolutely love him and of course angelica Houston is wonderful my wife was on a set that she was on at one point and she was apparently very nice to everyone but uh, she's Angelica freaking Houston. She can be nice to whoever she wants. No, I mean, when you're that level of famous, what does it matter what you do? Uh, I guess. Um, so we've talked a lot about this film. Um, I think I love this film. Uh, I do think that there are pacing issues uh, a little bit, um, but the film itself is the right length for me that I was never bored. Um, it's an hour and 34 minutes. It's, it's a quick one. The kids, you know, it ends when the kids might be getting a little antsy, so it's not overwrought. Um, 
And uh, just an interesting thing is that Pubert Adams the baby is actually played by two babies, both of whom are ladies. I thought that was interesting. And, uh, and I don't know if, if that makes this an early LGBTQIA plus film, but uh, I would say no, because I don't think that it has anything to do with the plot. That's a bit of a stretch. It is a bit <laughs> of a stretch. Um, but I'm sure there's a paper written on it. And if there isn't, I will be writing it because uh, that shit will get published. All right. So uh, shout out to everyone that was involved in this film. I think it was a great success. We're going to move on to the recommendations. Greg Johnson, who would you recommend Adam's Family Values to and why? Um, this will be, I think, a first for this pod. Um, I'm going to recommend this to everyone. Um, I mean, it was great. Pacing aside, contrived baby aside, it's, it's fun. It's light. Um, I would say you should probably watch the first one first, but I think that you can just hop into this one and enjoy it all the same. Um, yeah, it's still fresh in 2020, which is, you know, funny for a macabre pseudo cemetery family. Excellent, excellent. And I think that is a first. I'm not sure you've ever given a wholehearted uh, recommendation across the board. I, I think I've lived podcast. a sad life of hating a lot of things, and this might be the one joy I've had in a while. <laughs> Glad we could provide it to you. Best movie yet. I don't know. Jeffrey Tucker, who would you recommend Adam's Family Values to and why? Yeah, I mean, like, if you have a family and you love somebody, probably you could find something in here that relates to you. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love these films. I, I think the characters are very interesting. The only thing that I, I, I don't like about this film is that I think there's too much plot and we just didn't get the family. I, I think the writers kind of wrote themselves into a corner uh, and they separated the family. They're like all in different locations. So they couldn't interact with each other. So if you can't interact with each other, you can't get the screen time for all of those characters. Um, but yeah, other than that, like, yeah, it's, it, I, the movie works for me. I, I, it, the, you know, the problems aside, um, it's just is a, a great family and, uh, you know, I love them and they love each other and da, 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 lots of da, love, da, oddly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oddly. Yeah. And I think you make a good point too. And Greg as well. And I think this feeds together, uh, into the same thing is watching the first film first, that sounds funny. Watching the first film first, watching the first entry into this franchise before this movie uh, and then watching it probably, I'm not sure. I think it might help that as well because that's when we see the family together. And so for this entry, maybe it was a chance where they're like, well, if we separate them, it's going to be different because they're interacting with the world more than interacting with each other, which we've already seen. And so I'm going to have to go back and do that as well because the first film is totally worth watching. If you enjoy this one, Mary Sonnenfeld's still on it. Uh, it. It's the same same cast. It's 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 some brilliant stuff. I'll also mention before we get to Tad and myself um, that of course last year, 2019, we did get uh, the Adams Family, a 3D animated reboot. Uh, I have seen that film. I would not compare it to these films because I think that the 90s, the Adams Family movies, um, with the exception of the, the ugly duckling Adams Family reunion uh, with Tim Curry. It is, uh, it's an okay film, the 3D animated film. I think your kids will enjoy it. Um, you'll enjoy it eventually, but I did, I will say as an adult, it took a little longer to get into because it doesn't have the majesty that this film and The Addams Family uh, before it had. So if you really like The Addams Family, of course, watch the new one. I think you'll like it. 
But if you go in hoping that it's going to be the birth of a new brilliant franchise like this film was, or, or like the, the previous film that this is a sequel to was, you're not gonna get it. So don't be disappointed. Uh, but I think, sure, give it a watch. Tad Mastroianni, who would you recommend the Adams Family Values, it's actually Adams Family Values to, and why? Um, anyone who grew up enjoying eating the Adams Family cereal like I did. Yeah, but and all you know, <laughs> I can't help it. I grew I grew up um, in an era where the car the cartoon was um, was on, and uh, man, I certainly remember uh, hearing all the commercials about the cereal all the time. But if you like the gothic uh, comedy horror ish sort of deal that uh, Tim Burton pioneered, and uh, and if you like the monsters, because frankly, yeah, that there we go. He's got it. Yeah, and Sorry. those of you who, who aren't Patreon members, you can't watch the video of this, although join for a dollar a month at www.patreon.com slash cult and classic podcast, and you can see what I'm doing. I'm holding uh, an Uncle Fester figure from the television show that followed these movies, the cartoon, uh, which I, I got sent to cult and classic from Uncle Mike's, uh, Uncle Mike's Pop Culture Market, which is uh, a great place. Check them out on Instagram. Uh, I agree. The cartoon was fun. Um, I would just also want to give a plug. Adam's Family, the, the film before this, sort of led to the creation of one of the best original Nintendo Entertainment System games, Fester's Quest. Check it out. Super great game. Top-down action game. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, and I think that comes to me. Who would I recommend this film to is why? I recommend this film to everyone, uh, especially if you like macabre stuff. If you're really... I'm not using this as a derogative term, but if you're really vanilla white bread, um, maybe it's just not going to be your cup of tea. But if that's the case, I have no idea what you're doing listening to Colton Classic Podcast. So I'm just going to say, listeners, uh, enjoy. This is this is one for the books. Watch it. Personally, I actually think this is superior than to the first film, which is kind of unusual. Um, but they're both part and parcel. You, you shouldn't shouldn't uh, shouldn't skip either. And also, uh, they've been re-released as a two-pack on Blu-ray. Uh, recently for I think something like $14.99 so absolutely get it it's worth it and it's worth the the blu-ray or 4k transfers are really good all right so that's it for Adam's Family Values we're gonna jump ship and tackle Thanksgiving right up next hey cult and classic crew friends and fiends of the pod I know what you're thinking you're thinking Nate I don't have any money and if I did I'd be spending it on cool things like buttons and custom trading cards and zines that are unique and made each week by the Colton Classic podcast family. And guess what? You can do both of those things at once. You can support ColtonClassicPodcast.com and get awesome swag like buttons and custom trading cards that are printed on actual trading card stock by actual trading card printers and autographed by the artist. And also zines like classic issues of Rearted with comics and illustrations and interviews, as well as brand new Colton Classic Podcast family publications that uh, are brand new. So you'll get them first in line. These are awesome, awesome things that you can get just by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash Colton Classic Podcast. For as little as a dollar a month, you can get videos of our episodes. You can see all our lovely shining faces, as well as exclusive content like uh, extra episodes, film reviews, book reviews, and things like commentary by us on our short films, which you'll also be able to see. If you want to pay a little more, $5 a month per se, US, then you get an awesome 
autographed custom trading card. These are official printed uh, at the same place that prints every other trading card you've ever bought and they're autographed by the artist. These are exclusively for Colton Classic Podcast and inspired by our episodes. They, you can't get them anywhere else except through us. Only $5 a month, you get it shipped right to you. Shipping is free. If you pay $10 a month, if you are a true drinker of the Kool-Aid for ColtonClassicPodcast.com, then you will get uh, the trading card, access to all of the content that is exclusive to Patreon members, and you will get a brand new zine every month, whether it's a classic uh, copy of Rearded Zine uh, with interviews, comics, art, all sorts of cool stuff, or brand new Colton Classic Podcast family publications. Those will get sent straight to your door. Plus, there's usually extras like pins, stickers, all sorts of cool stuff. So you're doing two great things. You are spending money on awesome swag, and you are supporting Colton Classic Podcast. I know it's tough right now in the pandemic. If you can do it, join us at Colton Classic Podcast Patreon. If you can't, why don't you recommend it to a friend? We all have those rich friends, and uh, they can spread it around a little more. I'm just going to say it. All right? Thank you so much. And uh, as always, Colton Classic Podcast loves you. And we are back talking about our Thanksgiving double feature. A couple of notes uh, that we went over that were brought up over the break. We should talk about Christine Baranski, amazing comedic actress, super awesome. She was um, uh, a big part of the Sybil show with Sybil Shepherd, uh, which was fun. And of course, she was Mary Sunshine in the film version of Chicago. Uh, she was in this as one of the camp counselors. And that actress who played the perfect little girl, uh, foil to Wednesday Adams at camp uh, was Mercedes McNabb. Thanks, Greg, for that find. Uh, she was, she played Harmony in Angel and Buffy. Um, and she also, interestingly enough, Greg pointed out, she had a bit part in the first uh, The Adams Family film where she plays a Girl Scout that goes door to door. So they could actually be the same person. It's interesting. We don't really know, um, but it's kind of neat. And uh, horror fans may recognize her more, uh, may recognize her better from the Hatchet series. She was Misty in uh, Hatchet and Hatchet 2. So here we are with another Thanksgiving film, Thanksgiving from 2009. I think I can safely say, I mean, this film was released relatively wide. Uh, it's a very low budget film. It was released, I mean, you could have bought it at Walmart. I literally saw it there one day and I don't even shop at Walmart. Um, but you can, you can imagine what a movie about a killer turkey that is a hand puppet uh, is like, and then throw that imagination out the window, because I guarantee this movie is actually different. Uh, it is crazy. It is only an hour and six minutes. Uh, I love this movie personally, which is why I subjected it to my panelists. And I think I'm, it's pretty safe to say also that uh, Jeff, Tad, Greg, none of you guys saw this movie before I sent you review copies, correct? No. no. Okay. Turns okay. out, I did, you and I lost it out of my memory. Uh, I watched this with a few of my friends back when I was living in Western Massachusetts because some of these scenes, I, I was like, oh my God, I've seen this before. Oh, 2009, that makes sense. Yeah. I yeah. was probably really drunk when I watched this movie. Probably, I mean, they were when they made it. I'm just kidding. No, it's actually, <laughs> it's actually not true. And uh, so this film, the plot as such, it's really more of a series of skits that loosely form a plot is that a turkey, T-U-R, 
T-U-R-K-I-E, who is the lead monster, the turkey uh, itself, is a spirit, uh, a vengeful spirit that was created by, quote, the greatest Native American sorcerer. And his entire purpose is to show up every 505 years and reconvention some of the descendants of the pilgrims uh, who blighted the Native American populace. Now, as I said, Turkey is a hand puppet. He has real turkey feathers on his back. Uh, he actually looks like a turkey. I mean, from the, from the neck down, he looks like a turkey. And his head is turkey-esque, but he's got this evil little eyes and grin. Um, he's clearly rubber, but I've seen much worse hand puppets in bad films before, so I'll grant that. Now, if you, if you seek out the DVD for this, which I urge you to do, uh, in the upper left-hand corner uh, on the cover, the first thing it says is boobs in the first second. It's true. <laughs> there are boobs in the first second in this movie. Uh, they're the only lesson that delivers. <laughs> I mean, kind of. They did a little bit of exposition in like, you know. Yeah, I think it may be more accurate to say like, um, like the first two seconds. Mm. Um, I didn't time it, but I, I think that might be the case. Um, the we'll, we'll see about getting that class frame. action going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel lied. <laughs> um, now, the character, so I don't know, uh, it is, so the, the actress in the beginning who's, whose breasts are exposed, um, she plays a pilgrim in this, she's credited only as Naked Pilgrim, uh, it's Wanda Lust, is her, is, her, is her career name. She is an adult actress uh, who I think was in features from 2005 uh, into the, I think, Thanks Killing 3, which is technically the sequel to this, is the last film uh, that she did. Um, perhaps she's done more, but I think also Thanks Killing 1 and 3 are the only non-pornographic films that she's done. So go for her. Um, yeah, I, I don't... <laughs> It, here's the brilliance of this film. And I am, I am using the word brilliance and I'm not doing it sarcastically. It is very short and they don't fuck around with their pacing, for lack of better words. It's very quick moving. Um, if there's a scene of dialogue between characters that's this exposition as opposed to just jokes, you know that you're not gonna have to sit through it for five minutes. It's gonna at max be a couple of minutes and then they're gonna cut to the next thing. Um, the voice of Turkey is, uh, I don't actually know who did the Gordon voice of Downey, is that what it says? Is, uh, so, is that a voice? That's at least what IMDb gives it as. Jordan Downey, who is a uh, doing his He's his a, well, best he's uh the director yeah so you're right okay. yeah. so he's the director and he and he voiced turkey so that's um and he also co-wrote the film uh with with kevin stewart uh and then there were two other excuse me three other people who did additional writing credits i'm sure they were punch-up doctors essentially um to, to add jokes grant yaffe anthony wilson and bradley schultz so uh jordan downey i think he does fine as the um the voice of turkey yeah he does a little gravelly um sort of Brad Dourif ish I mean, no one can touch Brad Dourif, especially. I was going to say it was a John J. Dick impression from Serious Sam, if you ever played that game. Sure, sure, absolutely. This sort of gravelly. So he, and he, his first, uh, his first lines, the first lines in the film at all is nice tits, bitch. Uh, those are the first lines spoken by the Robert Turkey before he apparently hatchets the naked pilgrim to death. Um, then when he reappears, he, uh, the plot, this is, if you're looking for, 
any sort of realism in the plot, you're looking in the wrong place. That's not what this movie is about. Uh, and I don't think they make any bones about that or any claims otherwise. Um, he shows up again when uh, a, a hermit who is, is billed his actual name playing the hermit is General Bastard. Um, General Bastard's uh, collie, uh, who I swear he says the name different every time, but I think it's billed as flashy, uh, pees on a small totem pole in the woods, which apparently wakes up Turkey and sends him on his, killing, his new killing spree. Uh, supposedly this is 510 years in the future. At one point they say 510 because he's 510 years old. I guess, I guess it's supposed to be he's a five-year-old turkey who then is reanimated and then every 505 years comes back. I guess why. So it's been 505 years. That's why he's waking up to take revenge. But he wakes up at the time Flashy the dog urinates on his head. And his next lines uh, in the film after Nice Tits Bish are, are, uh, uh, piss fuck. That's literally his lines. And the delivery is actually makes me laugh every time. Um, it's, it's that stupid and it's kind of brilliant. Um, if you think that's the craziest thing to expect in this movie, again, you're wrong. Um, because this film crosses PC boundaries quite a few times, uh, two, two scenes exceptionally. So I think, um, and I'm not talking about the scene where they have uh, a little bit of animated, um, backstory, uh, whereas they showed the Native American sorcerer with unusually large nipples. Um, that's not one of the things I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is during one of the kill scenes when uh, the, the quote-unquote slutty character is having sex with some guy that has never been in the movie until this moment, uh, and the turkey kills him and then takes his place and begins having sex with the woman before killing her. And uh, it is so inappropriate. And so at this point though, cause it's about halfway through the film, as Greg mentioned to me earlier, we're not shocked. I don't think, uh, by anything in this film. And it's so ridiculous. I mean, it is literally a rubber Turkey riding on a person's back, uh, with one of his little Turkey legs over her bum. I mean, it is so ridiculous. Uh, and then when the other friends that we'll get to who find this person's body, uh, he found a dirty feather and an wrapper for a extra small gravy flavored condom. Now you can't hear it because he's muted, but Tad is laughing. This is a good clue to, uh, to Tad's taste level. Uh, but mine too, because it is laugh worthy because it's so insane. I mean, I don't you, have standards. You can't be offended by this film because it's so off the wall ridiculous. Um, because even the joke doesn't really work. I mean, why would turkeys have gravy flavored condoms? Turkeys don't like gravy. Turkeys are served with gravy. And then if you take it the extra step to say, well, if you're giving an oral sex to a turkey, maybe you're tasting turkey. That still doesn't work because it's a condom. Get your mind out of the gutter. The point is, is that um, these teens, uh, they're, I guess, supposed to be teens. They're not really teens, they're college age, although I'm pretty sure they range from like 19 to 42. Um, they, they just, they read their lines. They don't really act. They read their lines, but that's fine. That's fine. It's what they were paid to do. I, I, even, think I would paid? even say oh. the characters, like in the script writing, I, I, I'm pretty sure that the dialogue, at least in the first like 30 minutes was essentially, uh, 
you know, a, a, a person rolling a dice and then like assigning like the line that somebody was going to say like randomly to like the different people. Cause like, it's just, it's just chaos. Like characters like change their moods, like within like a sentence uh, and like, you know, their entire like point of view and like characterization changes in like, you know, the next sentence. It just, it's like, it, it seems almost like it's written with, with, like dice rather than um, uh, which, which I think is interesting. I think it's actually an interesting way to uh, I think Jeff's on to something here. I do think we, we do, do that kind of like a movie. crazy make it make it almost so stilted that it's like okay I can't be mad at them because this is just so bad. Uh, sure. Well, and I is, think too. What were we gonna say? Oh, I, I was gonna say, is it almost Jeff? Like one guy wrote this and it's all his jokes, and then he just had a bunch of characters say his jokes. Yeah, I mean, it's something like, because like, I mean, there was just like, there's like a couple times where like a character was like, you know, very, um, like the, the, the large guy who kind of was initially characterized as kind of this like, <laughs> like, I don't care about anything, like everything's a joke. And then literally within, within the like, like two, two lines of dialogue, he like changes from that into being like, really afraid and being like oh you know what i believe this story now uh i'm now really afraid of this turkey uh even though like two lines ago he was like laughing yeah. can about... we can we get though to why he's afraid of the turkey because here's what happens there's five friends okay there and i'm gonna run through their stereotypes really quickly ali played by natasha cordova she's the slutty one there's Kristen, played by lindsey anderson who's the pure one that everyone wants to have sex with for some reason i don't know uh, then there's Johnny Lance Predmore, which sounds like Predator Moore, and that's really weird because he's the attractive one who I think is 42. And, and then there's uh, Billy, who's the larger gentleman you're talking about, Aaron Ringheiser Carlson. And then there is uh, uh, Darren, who is the nerdy one who uh, they all just met except for uh, overweight Billy, and, and overweight Billy and Darren are best friends. Now, he's the nerdy one who, uh, Ryan E. Frankis is his name. The reason that I'm actually reading the names is because they don't have huge credits to their list, so I'm not going to say them again, not because I want to disrespect them at all, but because I won't remember them. Because um, I believe they have been in films. Uh, in fact... Uh, you could I call think, this a film, kind of. <laughs> it, is, it is over an hour, so it is a feature film. <laughs> um, to, to, and to be fair... Uh, the slutty one played by Ali, Natasha Cordova. Uh, she actually is, she was in multiple episodes of a uh, uh, telenovela, uh, La Vuida de Rafael. Um, she's been in some other things. And then uh, we've got some pedigree because um, Lindsay Anderson, uh, who, who plays the, the other one, the pure one, Kristen, she was in Terror Firmer, uh, the famed trauma film from 1999. Uh, she was the two sexed freak, the woman. And, and then uh, Lance, uh, Lance Predmore, who's the attractive one, Johnny, he was in a film called Elementary and Education and Death, which is one of the greatest titles I've ever heard from 2009. And then Aaron Ringheiser Carlson, who uh, played Billy, he only played Billy in Thanksgiving. I don't think he has any other credits to his name. So I just set all that information out to you so I can feel better about not using their actual names because I don't remember them. Now I can get to the point. The overweight gentleman became a believer in the killer turkey overnight because he woke up with a hermit with a shotgun telling him that I just saved your life because a turkey was going to pluck your eyes out. And the proof is that he shit on your chest. Yes, mm -hmm. he did. 
there were, I'm pretty sure there were marshmallows rolled in cocoa is what they used as uh, the, the pretty That's not what Turkish shit looks like anyway. I, if it is, if it isn't, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not, it is, it is pretty much not. Uh, Cause I've eaten whatever was on his back or his sleeping bag and it was not turkey feces. Um, I hope. Uh, well, the, actually, so just as one correction, randomly in the middle of a conversation, he actually swapped his tune and started to believe in the, the turkey, even before I went to bed, uh, which is one of like the character switch. Uh, I think most specifically Billy and Darren like swap personalities like a couple times, um, which is, which was ex especially weird. You're talking uh, about the overweight person and the, su and the supposedly smart nerd. Yes. Yeah. And the smart nerd. So he has this interesting a character choice he made to like rub his mouth like he's got snot on it like every few seconds um at first i'm like that's really ridiculous but by the end i was like yeah you know what good on you buddy good on you for having read that stanislavski acting one book and taking it to the bank um and uh he also has my favorite death scene in the film I, that's something else so Mention the plot, obviously, once the turkey comes back and starts killing these people, he kills their families because they're around them. Uh, of course, their plan is to then send this turkey back to hell. And there's a way they have to do it. They find a book in the, 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 the pure girl's dad's garage because he's a book guy. So of course, he must have a book about demon turkeys. Um, he just so happens to have a book about demon turkeys that is clearly upon close up, jaggedly cut cardboard folded in half. Um, pretty cool i like the prop department but i think it's important to say there's a high body count in this movie and the special practical effects are actually pretty decent um for a lot of it like it, well, I, well how about when um going to that aforementioned scene when they go up to get the book who's at the door waiting <laughs> for them but the pure girl's dad which is actually the turkey puppet and this is really hard to spot but it's the turkey puppet wearing a flesh mask of the father and it's, everyone just kind of oh okay and he, and, no, and like they're all like bent over it, that's the best part of the movie this is no the best no, part of the movie i'm gonna correct you <laughs> the best part of the film by far is when uh is when chuck lamb who he's known in some circles as um the dead body guy because he's been in many many television and shows and films as a person who dies and he's in a dead body um kind of a cool guy uh, he he is he is represented by an actual talent company he plays sheriff Roud, Kristen's dad and the best scene is when the turkey shows up at his door before the teens have arrived and he has the groucho marx glasses with the little plastic nose and he's like is amy home and he's like oh do you mean Kristen?" and he's like yeah and he's like are you a friend yeah okay well come on in and wait and then they have this conversation that kind of starts this way they're both sitting drinking coffee at the table and then this conversation occurs here allergy season you know fucking weather but it was nice today huh you just say fucking what do you mean? Is that supposed to mean that midgets can't cuss? I wasn't worried about the size of the fuck. I was worried about the age of the fuck. How old are you? 510 years old. Fuck it then. I guess you can say it. That is the best line. That to me is legitimately 
good writing and Chuck Lamb obliterated that part. He, he actually acted in that. And can we also mention the first time we see Chuck Lamb's character, the sheriff, he is given a cup of coffee by his wife oh, and God. he <laughs> takes a drink and dribbles it all over his face and then says, um, this coffee tastes like shit. Did you put shit in my coffee? And she pulls the coffee pot out and shows it to him and there is shit in it. And she says, yes, I did. I want a divorce. And she picks up the car keys and walks out the door. And he does not react. And then he tells his daughter on the phone, by the way, your stepdaughter left me. Love you, hon. Click. Like, I mean, it is so, the movie is so aware of how ridiculously bad it is that it's, I find it really entertaining and refreshing. It's not trying to do anything. It's doing exactly what it set out to do. Um, yeah, Chuck Lamb really, really gave us more than we deserved in this film. Oh, totally. Chuck Lamb should literally, I mean, I'm looking forward to Nicolas Cage's uh, Joe Exotic in his Tiger King show. Absolutely. But Chuck Lamb could literally be Joe Exotic. I mean, yeah. he could put in the teeth, put, you know, bleach his, his mullet, get a mullet, you know, and he could literally be Joe Exotic. Uh, it was a masterpiece to me. Every time he was on screen, I was highly entertained. And the fact that that conversation continues on, and then yes, Turkey wears a very obvious skin mask, and they all just re- like it's. It's not until um, Billy's character, that the heavyset gentleman, walks into the kitchen and sees Turkey with the skin mask moving the skin face body of the sheriff. That he's like, if that's the sheriff, then it's you. Like that, that ridiculous, it's just, it's another level. Like the movie continually amps up the insanity just a little bit every time until they could do whatever they want at the end. It's not going to matter at all. I mean, it's not going to matter at all. I'm going to watch it. There's animated scenes. I mean, I love were, that. Were you guys, were you guys at all surprised when Billy is like, I'm done with you guys. He, he's walking down the street by himself at night. And he's so hungry that apparently Turkey is able to make himself appear like an animated cooked Turkey, which <laughs> it's like out of a Looney Tunes cartoon. Which then, which then Billy picks up. It, of course, he's it's 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 like a photoshopped image over the thing, and he puts it in his mouth, and then is super satisfied until his gut explodes outward, and we see like the three foot long gun barrel come out <laughs> with Turkey. I mean, it's so. We're laugh. We're smiling, listening to it because it's so insane that it just it got me. Like, what? How are you supposed to argue with a film that is so ridiculous? I don't think you can. Um, the musical bit, the, the musical oh. bit was amazing. There's yes, when when uh when Darren the nerd uh sees his friend Billy dead, his best friend. There is a musical montage that is. I think the lyrics are something along the line of um, my best friend's dead. Billy, you're my best friend, you're dead. And like you were killed by Turkey, who's not my friend. <laughs> <laughs> it is, I mean, it's, so we've mentioned this several times on this podcast, Tad and Jeff, you will know that in high school, we started a project called Zombie Dance. Oh, which fuck, was I knew you were going to bring I know. And <laughs> although, although our taste level, I would say, is a few marks higher than most of this film, mm. this is very much what, I think Zombie Dance would have had been, we had more cohesion amongst and ourselves and money. Uh, B. And I, what's I the best line from Zombie Dance, Nate? 
Oh, I mean your zombie dance? Yeah, yeah. The, yeah, that's your the, script. Uh, that was no, 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 no. The best line in the movie because it wasn't scripted. Uh, I'm as he's being killed. Uh, I must retain my memories so I don't become gay again. Yes, it was a different time, folks. Okay, it was Hopefully not classic scripted. podcast. One hundred percent supports the LGBTQIA plus and trans communities. And I will say this: um, I don't think thanks killing is mean to anyone either. Uh, sometimes you see, especially a film where you see the killer essentially. Uh, uh, this is going to be crude sounding. Ghost fuck someone and then murder them. <laughs> Uh, that sounds horrendous, but it is just ridiculous. Uh, as I said, I, I, am not trying to apologize for it. I don't think it, I don't think I need to apologize for anything. I didn't make this movie, but, um, <laughs> they were like, what if we did that? And they're like, that's so wrong. And they're like, we're going to do it. Uh, also when the, uh, Turkey steals a car by hijacking a car and the guy opens the door for the Turkey and says, um, cash grass or ass. And the turkey looks at him and says, well, I don't have any cash, so I guess ass. And he turns around to display what we assume is his asshole to the driver. And then the driver reaches forward to, I guess, have sex with this street turkey. At which point the turkey then whips around with a shotgun, points it at the guy and the guy and has it against the guy's face. And the guy's like, no, please, I have a wife, I have a daughter. And he's like, call her. And he has the guy call his wife on the phone. This is like a three and a half minute bit call his daughter, have a brief conversation with his daughter, and then shoot the man and then take his car. I mean... Mid-conversation. The, 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 <laughs> Joaquin Phoenix's Joker was not as dark as that, yet this film does not feel dark. Pretty sure um, that's, uh, that's the scene from No Country for Old Men, right? That happens exactly? Yes. And let's talk about, too... Um, we mentioned how uh, the film was vo voiced and co-written by Jordan Downey, uh, who directed it. Um, he actually is, has cinematic sensibility. For example, when this occurs, when he gets shot, we see footage of the fields with lambs look up and then put their heads back down. That's not the kind of oh shit shot that someone who, uh, who doesn't understand cinema would do. Uh, so he actually has some knowledge, and I want to say that last year uh, he put out um, uh, another film, a, a serious film um, that's also co-written by Kevin Stewart called Headhunter, uh, which we might talk, tackle on this podcast some point. But it is a serious film, and it's quite beautifully shot. So uh, that is that is further uh, credit to them. That is probably why this film works, because, and I think it does work personally, is that if you don't understand how to set up a shot and how to flow from scene to scene as so many bad movies don't understand, then you're not actually gonna have a satisfying movie at all. Um, I haven't even really given you guys a chance to enter on this yet. Greg, what was your expectation of this movie versus now that you've seen it? Um, I mean, I expected it to just be wild and that's exactly what I got. Um, I mean, I've talked before about how much I love um, Santa's sleigh, mm -hmm. the, um, I think, William Goldberg <laughs> vehicle. Um, mm -hmm. And I put this right up there with it. If, like, you know, I kind of expected everything and I got that. And like you said, a turkey having sex with someone and then killing them. So, yeah, I quite mean, a lot. 
a lot. And, uh, and, and I will say, and Santa Slay, I think is totally fun as well. And I think the difference is the production values, right? Santa Slay has cameos and production values. This one, it does, it makes everything adequate, which is a success for essentially what appears to be an almost no budget feature. Um, I think this movie also knows when to get off the horse. Like yeah. you said, it's, it's 70 minutes and I didn't really have a chance to, to be bored, which was nice. Yeah. And I think and it was even five minutes longer. It would have been like, uh, yeah, I mean, you sure, get it. Sure. <laughs> well, and they even, they even, tro I mean, they troll the viewer, right? Like they have at first, they repeat a joke several times from like 20 minutes apart. Um, and, and you think, is this a mistake? But then they bring it back again. Like, um, it, and the joke, one of the jokes, there's two, but one of them in particular that they bring back the most is um, in the beginning when they're all like carpooling to drop each other off at their homes for Thanksgiving break, because that's of course when this takes place. Um, they're like, you're kind of a skank and you're kind of a slut. And Allie's character is like, what do you mean? And Kristen goes, her legs are harder to keep closed than the Joan Benet Ramsey case. And which is a, which is a good joke. And, um, and, and then she says that exact same joke, like 20 minutes later in the car in the same setting and everyone reacts as though they've never heard it. And I literally, especially the first time I watched this, I was like, did they, did they forget that they included that in that shot before? I did a double take on if it was the same shot. Yeah. And right. And then the next they do it. Then later Darren's character, the nerd tries to tell the joke and he butchers it. And, and I'm like, okay, they're aware that they've retold this joke several times, but we weren't in on that awareness until that moment. Uh, and, and I felt totally trolled by the film. Um, it kind of reminds me of, um, for people that have seen Black Dynamite, there's a bit where like you see the boom mic come down and mm -hmm. he like looks up and looks at it and it hits him in the head. And it, like that, that yeah. kind of intentional, like, hey, like let's make a modern movie that feels like a very cheap 70s or 80s mm -hmm. film. Um, that said, I think um, Lindsay Anderson as Kristen, I think she does look at the camera pretty dead on early in the movie, which I don't know. I, I have to imagine that they left that in purposely, but like they're trying to fix the car and yeah. she kind of looks down and I'm like, did someone say something to her? But like the camera's at a low angle. So I'm like, maybe the camera operator was being weird and she was like, what are you doing? But like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of, um, and here's the thing. As I read everyone's credits, most of the cast does have at least one other credit on on a, a nationwide release film or, or you know, a, a large indie film. And so these are not people, this is not necessarily their first film for most of these people, uh, although it's early for them. So I have to assume that much of their insane line deliveries is because it was a one take wonder or very few takes um, because they literally deliver lines as on a whole uh, as though they have never spoken to a human being before. Um, sometimes they're, they're often just delivering lines into space. Uh, it's like sort of a recorded animatronic creature that's facing roughly towards another animatronic teacher and they're just on timers setting their speed. But it works for this sort of movie because it tells you right away that this is not a serious film. Um, and I also want to talk about the the fact that there's a lot of horror tropes that they mess with intentionally. Um, so the hermit shows up uh, again to sort of stop the turkey from escaping when they've tied the turkey in his teepee 
because that is where the turkey sleeps and eats salad that he is tossing. Make of that what you will. Uh, the turkey escapes after they've taken away his, his uh, invincibility using a spell and he runs out and then he gives the memorable line, oh fuck, because the hermit is there and shoots him with a shotgun. He then goes flying in a bloody heap into a uh, waste bin, like an open waste bin as one would expect on a street before pickup. And uh, they're like, oh, I guess we don't have to burn him. Like he's clearly dead. And so they leave. And then later on, they're having a conversation at Kristen's house, I guess with their dead dad in the living room or something. And she has, and, and, and Johnny's character says, well, I think he's dead, right? I mean, he's gotta be dead unless that was like toxic waste or something. And then of course they show a shot of the trash bin and as a sticker like danger, nuclear waste. And so the turkey comes back glowing green, kills Darren in a pretty great death scene. Like he pulls his tongue out, which is gruesome. That's a classic uh, slasher horror, horror effect where it pulls apart. But then he like in fast forward motion rapidly pecks lightly at his shirt until there's a bloody hole and he can pull out his whole heart with his beak. I loved that. Um, and then he kills Johnny with one of those automatic turkey carving knives, which has anybody ever used one? Because that looks like the stupidest, most impossible, most non-functional device ever. I've used it. Um, <clears throat> I definitely prefer to just carve manually because um, there are a lot of, there's a lot of margin for error with those, <laughs> those um, mechanical knives. I, 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 every time I see one, I'm like, this looks like a as seen on TV thing that is impossible to use. Um, it's very much for he, show. Yeah, he exactly. He gets, I'm like, this is like something people would buy in the 50s to show how well they're doing. Like, don't use your sharp knife, Steve. What are you, a caveman? <laughs> Try this new slash-o-matic. Yeah, so he gets killed with that. And then, of course, it's, um, it's Kristen's turn to kill this creature. So she uses a can of spray paint and a lighter to light him on fire and then uses a baseball bat to knock him into a conveniently placed funeral pyre where he burns. The, the thing is though, is that as he lands and he burns, a chick, or turkey leg, roasted turkey leg flies out of the pyre and she walks up and grabs it. The hermit pops into frame out of nowhere and says something like, nice job. Or like, that was pretty, you know, you did badass job. And she's like, I know, and she takes a bite of the turkey leg. Um, that to me was kind of a great ending for this because if they had any sort of, if they didn't have that little ridiculousness, if it wasn't the combination of her like 180 degree shift into badass, eating from the turkey leg that just fell out of the fire, the turkey cursing that he will get them all back and the hermit popping into frame out of nowhere, it wouldn't have been satisfying to me. If in any other way the turkey had died, I would not be okay with this. How did you guys feel about the ending? It was as insane as the rest of the film. <laughs> it just, yeah. I mean, that, that was like the one thing that, like it actually took me, like I was a little annoyed by the kind of like the random dialogue at the beginning until I like really realized what this film was like. I, I thought it was a little bit more like a Ginger Dead Man, which is a yeah. film we previously talked about, which was just going to be kind of like a, uh, like a like a true. It's a movie. Well, that, you know, like a movie. Yeah, a movie where you have a like a you know a scary monster that 
you know, creates tension. And, yeah. you know, you're like scared that their characters are going to die to it. And this, this is just not that. This is not at all. Not even remotely close. Uh, and, and once I realized that, I was, I was able to accept like basically any insane thing that happens. It was just was, um, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah. Just totally. madness. And was that what you expected going in? No. Well, I, like I said, I oh, expected you expected a ginger dead man. Kind yeah. Of yeah, for sure. And this easily could have been that, right? Like if you'd pitched it to someone say, hey, I want to make a killer turkey movie. Um, the, there's the Black Sheep film, uh, which came out, uh, it's been a while now, but in the 2000s where they're literally like they're man-eating sheep. They're sheep. They don't talk or anything. Um, and it's kind of a great film. And it's this weird bleak horror comedy that's extremely violent. Um, and this could have been that. But instead, it definitely went the like super low budget uh, child's play Chucky knockoff route, you know, like a quip spouting puppet um, that actually has personality. Like I, I, I liked seeing him and he actually like I wouldn't say he has good one liners because he really doesn't. Um, but he makes for entertaining conversation, uh, at least with Chuck Lamb and the sheriff like that. That scene really made the film for me. Um, and then wearing the face and them not acknowledging it, you know, bending down to, to talk to him and hug him. It's sort of like, it's like SNL doesn't even reach this level of, of ridiculousness because there's usually one straight character, you know, that's like playing it serious and is confused why everyone's being ridiculous. This has none of that. The entire cast, everything is ridiculous, um, which sets it apart from the sort of stupid film like, um, and I say stupid in an endearing way, stupid film like Dumb and Dumber or um, Ace Ventura or uh, Anchorman, you know, like everyone is normal. These characters are crazy. And Thanks Killing, all the characters are crazy. No one is normal. It's closer to an adult swim show than it is, say, uh, I was actually going to say it's like, like kind of Tim and Eric. It has like that just yeah. like randomness. Things just are happening. And like it, the jokes aren't necessarily like funny, but it's just like kind of the awkward, like weird like yeah just it is the thing that kind of creates the humor and well the, robot chicken works on the same principle like yeah. it's just subverting expectations and and making fun of things in a way they're not even making fun of it they're just sometimes they're making fun of it but other times they're just showing you something weird and yeah. it's it's fast enough that you're engaged the whole time because it isn't what you're expecting and it is in in the basis sense a form of joke because you're subverting the expectation but it's not a joke in that there's a wit to it necessarily um, so I think that that's a very clean observation. Tad, uh, what did you think going into this film? What did you think it was going to be like versus when you actually saw it? Every time we get one of these movies in our rotation, I go, is this going to be worse than Shark Exorcist? And I've still yet to find anything. We, that still, we, we set the bar right at the bottom. We, we just, right? <laughs> that bar so low. Um, <laughs> This is the, I think that this ended up being uh, the most expensive $3,500 movie I think I ever looked at. I was surprised. Because you mean quality I, wise? Yeah, I believe the budget was right, what, $3,500? And I honestly, like when the movie started, I thought that Wanda Lust was going to be the most expensive part of this movie. And it turns out she, maybe she didn't even get paid at all. Maybe she just did this because she thought she could like get some extra exposure. Um, Literally. Yeah, but <laughs> hey, that's that joke would have fit in this film. No, it totally would. <laughs> I expected that, honestly. Um, which is, it, I just, 
you go, I, I, yeah, I went into this and going, I can't believe actually how decent the quality is. Like the, the animatronics were pretty good. It, well, it mastered I guess the like, sound. Just you like, know, like the sound is mastered, even though occasionally like in an outside scene, maybe it's a little different. It's mastered. You can understand them. Um, I, we know on this podcast how difficult it is sometimes uh, for Nate to get the sound right. Um, the little animated section was actually pretty Seriously, good. Seriously, like, like yeah. someone's. Like, I, I actually, on. I was like, wow, this like I like the art style and like. Sure. Yeah, no, pretty well. That's it. And I think that gets the point. Um, they enjoyed this. I think um, it feels like it was enjoyed, and it it wasn't. Um, sometimes you'll see a, a film in the no budget category or ultra low budget category, uh, which I love. Uh, but you'll see a film where it's, you know, friends with a camcorder. It's not really a movie. Uh, it, it's just a bunch of people. And they didn't really, when they put it together, they weren't there to put on any extra polish. They're like, no, it's done. Like this, this is what this is. And it's, it's this. In this film, they actually made sure that certain things worked. Like, for example, and I didn't notice the, the first several times I watched this film until th for this episode, I watched it on a bigger screen. And... Um, the scene where it's nighttime, so it's dark, where uh, uh, Darren, Johnny, and Kristen's characters are all looking in at the purportedly dead, bleeding turkey in the trash can. It's dark. It's all black around them. But it's actually gray, of course, right? Because it's real life. It's not a solid, true black. Um, and in the upper right-hand corner, there were little speckles of light. I couldn't figure out what it was. And in the upper corner was like a triangle of blackness that was darker than the rest. It was a boom mic. But... You can't tell because what they did is they put an overlay on probably in photo, uh, Adobe Premiere or, or Final Cut Pro or something like that, where it was a mostly darkened, it was a darker corner, okay? It was less exposure or whatever, you know, tool they used. And they mostly covered up that incredibly in the scene boom mic. And they wouldn't have bothered to do that in some other movies or they just would have cropped the shot closer. But clearly... They're like, no, this, this is the setup for this shot. I need them to be here. And so instead of going the super easy route, they went with a little bit harder route. Um, and that to me just, it told me, oh yeah, that's why this is better than those other movies. They, they cared about it. Um, and, and I think that that's, you know, it's worth commending. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna get us towards a wrap up here, uh, but I, I do wanna mention that there is a sequel to Thanksgiving. It is not Thanksgiving 2. Uh, it is actually Thanksgiving 3. Uh, and it is... Uh, Random and zany! Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, is, it is the... Uh, a, there's, there's a quest to recover the lost copy of Thanksgiving 2. That is a key component of the plot of Thanksgiving 3, which came out three years later uh, from this film, so 2012. And... Uh, it's not in space, so it, it uh, well. There is a scene in space, uh, so I will. Oh. I will. Uh, I will. I will. I will hold on that. I, I would love for us to tackle this at another time, um, and I want to also just give a note that uh, Wanda Lust also is in Thanksgiving Three. So, moving right along, Tad, who would you recommend Thanksgiving Two and why? This is. Uh... Considering the age this came out in, this is um, a great movie for those who missed the uh, college humor era of the internet. Because didn't this movie come? Uh, didn't this movie have a YouTube release? Uh, it had a. Uh, it it might have had a MySpace release. Oh, MySpace. Um, well, no. <laughs> so it had a MySpace account, but it was probably in 
it might have been released on YouTube that I think about. But anyway, it started with a MySpace account. So it's been in production for a while, most likely. Yeah, this is a movie that I feel is kind of it, it, it this movie actually, to me kind of represents the end of that decade. Because things started to drastically shift in the next few years after 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012, everything's like a lot of media started shifting. And this movie is kind of like a leftover of that uh, beautiful era between 2006 to 2009 and maybe a little of 2010 where um, it was still, it was still kind of the old wild, wild west and, and the, the, the like, channel 101 the, era kind of thing. Yeah. A lot of the internet was still full of stuff like this, but this just happens to be one of the higher budget pieces. Like a lot of it was, you know, you're the man now, dog, and early YouTube and ridiculous, stupid junk. And I, this is this is a like if you enjoy the nostalgia of that era, this is a perfect um, piece for that. And now that I think about it, I think you're right on that front. Um, and that's and of course that era of of humor and the internet was really an outcropping of the same group of or group think of individuals that just wanted to create something with this new media that. Um, the, the rental store, the VHS uh, camcorder era uh, shot on video, you know, started. It didn't really start. I'm sure there was something before that. There were zines before that. Um, so it all feeds into that. And I, I agree. I think this is, it sits firmly in that do-it-yourself entertainment category where it actually succeeds. And I hadn't thought of that, but Channel 101, if anybody doesn't know what that is, go to channel101.com and check it out. Um, it's it's a it's a playground for people to make uh, sort of five minute pilots of things, and uh, there is some insane garbage and some brilliant trash on there. It is Will Ferrell, uh, I believe, supported it for a long time, if not founded it. There's a lot of weird stories I haven't looked into it too much, but um, it is a, a passion of mine. So check that out, guys. That was fun stuff. Greg, who would you recommend Thanksgiving to and why? Um, I mean, if you if you liked what we had to say about um, Ginger Dead Man, if you like Santa Sleigh, if you're just a fan of kind of holiday like holiday parody horror films, um, I'd say give this a whirl. Um, I definitely won't recommend it to everyone, but I will recommend it to kind of the cult horror crowd because I mean it's funny. It's short enough that you can just dismount it, and I I had fun. All right, fair enough. And uh, I'm just going to say, I think this is the only time, Greg, that you've been on this show where you have actually uh, recommended and, and it sounds like enjoyed both of my selections. So yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm it's, losing it's, my edge, I guess. It's a new era. I'm sure next time I'm on, I'll, I'll come in haggard, drunk, and just spew forth a lot of hate. Oh, well, then I guess Tad doesn't have to be here. Um, <laughs> ah, Jeff. Jeffrey Tucker, my friend, who would you recommend? Oh, come on. This movie is clearly for people who can't wait three seconds for tits. That's, that's who it's for. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no, honestly, I mean, this, if you're easily offended, don't go see this. If you, if you don't like that kind of comedy that's not like jokes and funny things, but just like awkward and weird and stilted and just random, uh, you know, that, that's, that's what this is. Um, uh, I mean, it's not the best version of it, but it's 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 totally passable. And uh, you know, like Nate said earlier on, there's not enough Thanksgiving themed movies. So, yeah, totally true. I mean, there's been set there. There was a Bob's Burgers episode where the beeline was uh, that there were no Thanksgiving songs, and that's true. And it is also true that there are 
virtually no Thanksgiving films. So having this on the roster of things that we can watch, you know, um, you know, Christmas has plenty. Uh, you know, if, if, if nothing else, Nightmare Before Christmas, uh, Halloween, of course, has a million, you know, who doesn't watch Hocus Pocus or something along those lines. But Thanksgiving does not have much. And so uh, I really think uh, the makers and the cast of Thanksgiving and of course, Turkey, um, who I don't have a golden altar of in my closet and worship as my Lord. I don't know. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to fess up to that. Uh, I, I really appreciate it, and I'm glad that it's uh, a part of our new lexicon of weird holiday movies. Um, I'm going to recommend this film to people who like South Park and are now renewed to its insanity and its incredibly occasionally horrifying humor, that they can tolerate something that's not quite as witty, but just as, almost just as filthy sometimes. So, I mean... At its peak, I think South Park can be a little more filthy because it also has sort of righteous satire behind it that makes it sting a little because it's true about our society. Things Killing doesn't have that. But if you like the South Park humor and you're okay with both aspects of it, the really smart humor that South Park has meshed with the totally vile, ridiculous gutter humor that it has, you're going to enjoy Things Killing. And again, it's an hour and six minutes. You've wasted more of your life standing in line for something. Uh, so give it a go and more of your life listening to this podcast honestly sure sure this is, this is you could have watched thanks killing um sorry about it uh yeah so that's it for this episode to play us off as always we have all about evil by friends the chud i want to once again mention our patreon at patreon.com slash colton classic podcast you can pay as little as a dollar a month to get access to videos of all of us for these episodes plus there'll be some bonus episodes in the future you can pay five dollars and get an autographed custom colton classic trading card these are legit trading cards that you can't get anywhere else but from us um, and if you want to pay ten dollars and really drink the kool-aid you get a zine every month, the card, the access, and cool swag. So check it out. Once again, I've talked over the length of our outro music, but I'm going to just say thank you guys. Keep listening and follow us at coltonclassic.com. No, don't do that. Follow us at coltonclassicpodcast.com. And if you own coltonclassic.com, reach out to me because you stole our domain name. Thank you so much. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to Colton Classic Podcast. This podcast is important to me, but what's more important are the rights, privileges, and freedom from violence of everyone in this country and in this world. And that means supporting Black Lives Matter. If you'd like to make a donation, please go ahead and visit coltonclassicpodcast.com where we have a list of places you can donate and help out. And please stay safe.